The Bible reading comes from Amos, chapter 4. It's on page 747 in your Bibles. Page 747, Amos, chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. This sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leave and bread as a thank offering, and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city, and lack of bread in every town. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to humanity, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Please keep your Bibles open as we continue our series on Amos. Well, metaphor is a figure of speech, a way to refer to one thing by mentioning another, like killing two birds with one stone. Who knows what that means? Basically being efficient, right? Getting two things done with a single action, killing two birds with one stone. Or bring home the bacon. What does that mean? Oh, it's up on the screen. I used the wrong picture. <laughs> to earn the money needed to live. Um, metaphors paint a picture 
to vividly describe what you're trying to say. Uh, but a couple of years ago, in light of the rise of veganism, the animal rights organization, PETA, re re released a, a list of animal-friendly idioms uh, to replace the meat metaphors we regularly use. So instead of saying killing two birds with one stone, they've come up with a new way of saying it. Uh, what do you think they've come up with? What would you say instead? That's a bit more animal-friendly. Well, they suggest feeding two birds with one scone. Instead of saying bring home the bacon, uh, they're suggesting we start saying bring home the bagels. And instead of saying all your eggs in one basket, we should say all your berries in one bowl. Now, it sounds like political correctness gone mad. And if such metaphors, which doesn't do any harm to any animals whatsoever, is offensive to people today, then Amos's message years ago isn't going to sit well with people today. For Amos begins today not only with a word of judgment, but with a metaphor, which I'm sure would rub most people the wrong way. Uh, but just as Amos isn't interested in being politically correct and not being, uh, 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 but in prophesying the words of God, we need to make sure we're interested in hearing the words of God and not being politically correct. So let's now turn to Amos 4 and hear the word of God. Verse 1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Now Amos is using metaphor. He speaks to the cows of Bashan. A, a, a metaphor for the wealthy women of Samaria, the capital city of Israel. Now, but what does Amos mean? What is this metaphor about? Well, Bashan was the most fertile part uh, of Gilead along the Yamok River in Transjordan. Bashan was a byword for prosperity in agriculture and animal husbandry. And so it could take, be taken positively. Uh, like the way animals are metaphors for the body parts of women in the Song of Songs. So just as the cows of Bashan are living it up and fattening up in the fertile plains of Bashan, so the women of Samaria are living it up and lounging around as wealthy women of Samaria. But the metaphor probably isn't meant to be taken just positively, but also negatively, because their life of luxury and self-indulgence didn't come from honourable work but from oppressing the poor. Verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Now, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Israel abused the poor for profit. They sold their brothers and sisters into slavery for pittance. They reaped a harvest at the expense of the needy. And if we had any temptation to think that it was only men doing this, well, we're wrong, because Amos makes it clear in this passage that the women were behind this too. And so if the women of Samaria behave like cows, then God's going to treat them like cows. Verse 2, The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come, when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You'll each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you'll be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. The holy God won't tolerate an unholy people. And so he'll destroy the city, the walls of the city will be breached, and he'll send them into exile, taking them away with hooks like cows. And as history tells us, within 30 years of Amos's word, it comes to pass. Paul Barkin, his commentary, says this, 
In some of the reliefs that have been discovered, the cruel Assyrians were depicted as dragging along their captives in a procession having tied them with ropes. Attached to the ropes were hooks, which were placed through the nose or mouth. Truly a painful, gruesome act. This would have been humiliating for anyone, let alone the fine women of Israel. And if God would judge the fine women of Israel in such a way, we should never pretend that God would not send his judgment upon the fine women and men of Melbourne today. God is a holy God and he demands absolute holiness just as he's holy. And Jesus said, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Recently I had a health, uh, helpful, I read a helpful distinction between a grace-filled Christian and a hypocrite. Uh, it's by Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan author and preacher. He says this, A gracious soul labors to make the worst of his sins, but hypocrites make the best of them. They do not deny they are sinners, but they do what they can to lessen their sins. That is, hypocrites aren't self-righteous snobs. They don't think that they are perfect. They know they're sinners, but they just don't think their sins are all that bad. While a grace-filled Christian will see their sins in the worst possible light, hypocrites will minimize their sins. While a grace-filled Christian will be brought to tears by their sins, hypocrites use arguments to defend their sins. And I wonder whether that was what was happening in Israel. After all, what's a little slavery here and there? If it means the economy keeps humming along nicely and people are off the streets and in full-time employment, it might not be perfect, as God would have it, but surely a sacrifice here and an offering there to God would appease him and cover the multitude of these small sins. And that's what the women of Samaria were like. They were very religious. Their hearts, though, couldn't be further from God. And so Amos makes a mockery of their religion. By mimicking the false temple priests, Amos uses sarcasm now to call them to worship. Verse 4, go to Bethel and worship. No, no, he doesn't say that. Notice what he says. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin some more. Bethel was the central place of Israel's worship. The, the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome for the Roman Catholics, the Mecca for the Muslims, uh, the Jerusalem for the Jews, and Gilgal was the place where Joshua led the Israelites into the Promised Land. And it appears that, that they have been going there for 700 years to worship God. But the problem is that both Bethel and Gilgal were illegitimate places of worship. They were never meant to go there to worship God. For God had chosen Jerusalem. God had called people to Jerusalem, to his temple, to worship God there. But the northern kingdom set up places other than Jerusalem to worship God on their terms and not God's terms. And so Amos uses sarcasm calling them to these illegitimate places, not to worship, but to sin. For that's what they've been doing all along. Their whole religion has been self-serving and not God-honoring, self-centered and not God-glorifying. Now notice what Amos emphasizes from verse 4. 
bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years, burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. You see, it's all about them. Their religion is about them. And it's not about God. And the people of Israel didn't just bring their sacrifices occasionally or just at the major festivals according to the law of Moses. They were bringing sacrifices every morning. They were very religious. They were very devout. They weren't just bringing their tithes every three years. They were bringing their tithes every three days. They weren't just bringing the bread to sacrifice. They were bringing leavened bread to sacrifice, which was forbidden. They were very religious, very devout. But their religion counts for nothing. Because just as God is absent in their business, so God is absent in their worship. They think they can separate their religion with their business by pressing the poor Monday to Friday and worship God on Saturday. They might have the perception of loving God, but neither but they neither love him nor fear him. As one knee is bent in prayer to God, so another knee is bent on the necks of the poor. As one hand gives offerings to God, another hand is robbing from the poor. And so their piety increases their sin. Their devotion makes them more detestable to God. Their religiosity drives them further away from God. The more they thought they obeyed God, the more they actually sinned against God. And they were blind to it. And now this is a cause for reflection for us, isn't it? A cause for us to pause and reflect on our own lives. For these women were prosperous, just as we are. They were religious, and maybe we are too. Because like the Pharisees after them, it's terribly easy to use religion to mask our crooked lives. And even partake in holy communion to make up for our unholy week. As grace-filled Christians, we need to see our sins in the most horrible and terrible of lights and repent from them. We need to see what we do from Monday to Saturday matters to God and not just what we do on Sundays. As grace-filled Christians, we need to be careful not to love reading God's word more than we love obeying God's word. We need to be careful not to love our fellowship with one another more than we love having fellowship with God around his word with one another. We need, we need to be careful not to love serving God more than we actually love God and being served by him. You see, Amos's word to Israel was a word of judgment on them and therefore a warning for us. And we must heed that warning lest we fall under the judgment of God that is far greater and far worse than they had suffered as cows of Bashan. Last week, a TikTok clip went viral. Of all the people you'd expect it to come from, no one expected it to come from South Australia police. It features Senior Constable Matt Brown, 
flaunting an array of interesting dance moves about speeding. In the clip, Brown busted a series of moves as different excuses flashed across the screen, excuses people give for speeding. Here are some examples. I was just trying to get there quickly before I get, forget where I was going. Uh, I was just seeing if your radar is accurate. It appears it is. The wind was pushing my car faster. I thought speeding was going really fast. I'm only 20 kilometers over. Now, the point of the clip was to warn motorists not to speed, to drive safely, not to make up excuses when you're caught. And in a similar way, God has warned Israel over and over, not about the way they drive, but about the way they live, not about speeding, but about their sins. You see, even though Israel was a prosperous nation during the days of Moses, they and the Sumerian Ordinary Index was at record highs, it wasn't always like that. Because before the days of Moses, Israel suffered from significant disasters. Amos tells us of five disasters that came their way from verse 6 to 11. Have a look at that with me. So you'll see in verse 6, there was famine. Verse 7, drought. Verse 9, blight and mildew and locusts, which destroyed their crops. Verse 10, plagues and warfare. Verse 11, an earthquake. Now, these five disasters took place that the Israelites would have identified with, would have known about, would have heard about, would have felt keenly about. And, and, and maybe they explained it away. Maybe they said, oh, well, we're just unlucky. Maybe it's global warming. Maybe the devil's mucking about. Maybe we use bad fertilizer and we, we, we produce a bad crop this year. Or maybe it's just fate. It happens to everyone anyway. What's the difference when it happens to us? But if you notice the start and end of each disaster, especially when Mary read it out, we're actually told why these five disasters happen, how they should be understood. Let let me read a couple to you. Verse 6, the first one, I gave you, I gave you. Who's speaking here? It's God speaking, isn't it? God is saying, I caused this. I brought this disaster upon you. I gave you empty stomachs. I caused the famine. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Or or take the the, the, uh, one in verse 10. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. The way I treated Egypt that you saw, that you read, that you know of, the plagues that I sent to punish Pharaoh and his people, the way I treated them is the way I've treated you now. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. God is saying he did this. This might not sit well with us. But that's the word from the prophet Amos. This is God's word. He's not being politically correct. He's not being concerned about our image of God. He's painting a true image of God, for this is the word of God. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. That is, God is speaking, and he's the one who's given them empty stomachs in verse 6 and no rain in verse 7. 
He's the one who struck their gardens and vineyards in verse 9 and treated them like the Egyptians and sent them plagues in verse 10. He's the one who's overthrown their cities like Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 11. You see, if Israel chooses to disobey God, then God will treat them like the other nations. If they want to live like the pagan nations around them, then God will treat them like the pagan nations around them. God will punish them just as they had punished the nations around them. And each time disaster fell upon them, they weren't meant to rationalize it. They weren't meant to explain it away through their understanding of ecology or or global warming. They were meant to see that this is God's act of judgment. They were meant to remember Deuteronomy 28 and the curses for disobedience. They were meant to repent of their ways and see them as warnings so that they might turn back to God. Because each time disaster fell upon them was an act of God's grace. It was a reminder of their wickedness, an opportunity to heed the warnings of God's judgment, a chance to repent and turn back to God before it was too late. Yet time and time again they refused. And as each disaster is described, it ends with these solemn words, these words of deep regret and sadness from God. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Can you see and sense the desperation that God has, that he wants his people to repent and return to him? But they refused. They refused not just once or twice, but five times, as illustrated here. And so now God will act, and they will meet their God. Verse 12, Therefore this is what I will do to you, Israel, And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. The God of the Bible is not a pushover. He's not a God you can muck around with, not a God you can box up and discard, not a God like a genie in a bottle. He's a holy God, an all-powerful God, the God of all creation. Verse 13, who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to mankind, turns dawn to darkness, treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. Amos announces God's judgment on Israel because they were warned over and over again through disaster after disaster, a call for them to repent to turn back to God, to put aside their hypocrisy, to abandon their sinful ways, to worship God on his terms. And in a similar way, almost 800 years later, another prophet warns Israel to repent. Another man who was also the son of man, in Luke chapter 13, tells us, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Randomly, some people came up to Jesus. We don't really know the situation, but they're asking Jesus to comment on a situation that had just transpired. That some Galileans came up to Jerusalem to worship God, to offer sacrifices to God, but for some reason, Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, slaughters them. And as their blood spilt, it mixes with the blood of the sacrifices which is completely sacrilegious, a horrible situation. And and so people are wondering, Jesus, what do you think of this? Jesus, how should we understand this? Jesus, what should we do 
about this. But look at how Jesus responds. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus isn't interested in who's right and wrong, in what caused the disaster, in in how to handle the situation. What's more important to Jesus is that we must repent. And if this example was a disaster caused by human hands, maybe by some great injustice, we don't know. Well, the second example that Jesus goes on to is what we might call a natural disaster, most likely from an earthquake that caused the tower of Siloam to fall. Verse 4, of those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see, whether a disaster is caused by human hands or a natural disaster, there may be rational explanations or unjustified reasons why innocent people are killed. There may be ecological explanations or unidentified reasons when natural disasters fall on us. But the takeaway message for you and me is this. Unless we repent, we too will all perish. You see, as Christians, we don't fall under the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28. And as individuals, we're not at risk of being conquered as a nation and sent into exile like the Israelites. But the message of Amos is the message of Jesus. It is the one and same message that when disaster befalls on us, the disasters are to be seen and understood as warnings from God. Unless we repent, we too will all perish. From the COVID pandemic to the war in Ukraine, from the recent devastating floods in New South Wales and Queensland to the handful and melt disease coming from Indonesia, from the economic and political crisis in Sri Lanka to the volcanic eruptions in Tonga, our temptation is to rationalise it, to explain it, and maybe even to ignore it. But at the end of the day, whether it's a major crisis on the other side of the globe or a local disaster only keenly felt by a few, they're all warning signs for us. A reminder that the world we live in is not right. There weren't so-called natural disasters in the Garden of Eden. There were no natural disasters then. There was no conflict between Adam and Eve before they ate the forbidden fruit. And so every conflict, every disaster, every crisis, every pandemic is a reminder for us that things aren't right and that God's going to make it right. And that means we have a chance to repent, to see the seriousness of our sins and not to excuse and minimise our sins, lest we be hypocrites. To turn to Jesus and be so filled with his grace that no matter what disaster comes our way, we will live with such humble and repentant faith that we will be ready to meet our God face to face, not as our judge, but as our heavenly Father.
So friends, when you watch the news tonight and hear of disasters, when you catch up with your friends this week and hear of their troubles, let it remind us, let it warn us that things aren't right, that God's judgment is coming, that the time for repentance is now. Amen.